this week, we continue on in the Green Sundays with the, these readings in sequence from the book of Genesis, from Paul's letter to the Romans, and from Matthew's gospel. And so I'm going to preach on all of them and talk about it. They're great stories. You know, one of the great things about reading the Bible or uh, a long, long time ago, people who teach Sunday school a lot and teach people about Sunday school and stuff say the best thing to do uh, if you do nothing else is to teach the biblical stories so that kids learn the, the great narrative of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, and also uh, the stories in the Gospels. Uh, you, I don't think you need to tell uh, eight-year-old children about justification by faith through grace. It isn't going to do... Paul is a little heavy sledding, but those are the things that are important to know, and today we have the continuation of the story. Uh, we had Abraham and Sarah, and now we have Isaac, and then we have uh, Isaac's sons, or Isaac's uh, Rebecca coming in on the scene, and it's just like the story of Abraham and Sarah. Rebecca could not ha uh, conceive. She had difficulty. And so, uh, according to the story, she gets pregnant when she's about 60. And she's going to have twins. And the twins are moving a lot inside her womb. Uh, the Hebrew word for what it is described is crashing around. They're crashing. Boom. Right? So Esau and Jacob get born, and uh, Esau comes out first, and Jacob comes out next with his hand on the heel of Esau. Esau is bright red, and he will get the name Edom. And we're going to learn the origin of the peoples, the Edomites. And it may also have something to do with the uh, stew that he sells his birthright for. So Jacob is described as a quiet boy. He likes to be with his mother in the tent. And he helps her cook sometimes. Uh, the name that is used to describe Jacob is morally innocent. So I used to mean that, I used to think that meant somebody with pure motives and simplicity of heart, but moral innocency could be ignorance of the moral way to proceed. And we will see uh, how that plays itself out in the story of uh, Esau and of Jacob, because Jacob is extremely clever in what it is that he does. So in the story, we continue on, and we have... Now the boy's grown, and Esau is the outdoor hunting, shooting, fishing, running around, vigorous guy. And Jacob is the quiet, reflective, maybe scheming guy. <laughs> and so one day Esau has been out hunting or running around, and he comes in, and Jacob is cooking this stew. And you notice it in the text, it says, give me some of that red stuff. So it's probably red lentils, yeah. right? In the King James Version, they call it pottage. So give me some of that pottage. And, you know, 
Jacob says, well, just wait, I'm getting it ready, and everything says, get, and so he convinces Esau to sell his birthright to him for this food. He's so hungry that he just can't stand it anymore, and he's like, well, what is it, how does it affect me? I don't know. And so this is going to now uh, produce the story that we'll read next week. And the story that we'll read next week is that uh, Jacob tricks his father, his grandfather, into giving him the birthright. And we'll see how that story plays itself out. Now, this is a story also about uh, uh, the source of Israel and the people of Israel, Jacob. And it's the source about Israel's enemies, the Edomites and others. I heard a wonderful sermon preached about this on YouTube by a rabbi in Southern California who talks about what this means in terms of how he understands it. And it has something to do with explaining why we have the nations and why we have Israel and why we have the others, and this is how this is going to play itself out. There'll be some reconciliation, there'll be some backwardness and so forth. Whenever I read this story, I always think about the idea that it may sound like a cliche, but that uh, God works through everybody even people with corrupt motives. God can use people. And people can have moments of clarity where they begin to see uh, that they may need to change direction in their life or they may, may need to be an instrument of transformation in their communities in ways that are healthy and life-giving. And so this is a story about how that happens in the ancient Near East and it also is part of the grand narrative where we begin to see how God has been present to uh, the creation from the beginning and is shaping the people. And whenever there's faltering, he remains faithful. And he abides with us as we seek to do his will. So we have that beginning and we stay tuned now uh, for next week. I thought um, I would preach a little bit on Romans 8, but uh, this is one of the most important chapters in the, in the Pauline writings, Romans 8. And it has a lot to do, it's important because since the Reformation, this has been the location for a lot of the theology that we uh, learn and know about uh, in the Reformed tradition, and indeed in the Catholic tradition uh, as well, but with a different, from a different vantage. But what I'm interested in in this reading today is not to get into some of the very tightly reasoned stuff about the law and sin and so on. I want to talk about the flesh and the spirit because Paul is very concerned about the flesh and the spirit. And I think often it has been misconstrued and misunderstood uh, even by fairly theologically apt individuals. Because right? it has a lot to do with thinking of the flesh as the whole of the material world, uh, our bodies being human, uh, the creation itself is material, and that that's bad. And what we should be yearning for is the world, uh, world of the spirit, right? Somewhere else, or the stuff that's in, invisible, we have a lot of difficulty with this now. There was a time, certainly in evangelical circles, where 
we could talk about the need for a spiritual revival in this country. Everybody says they're spiritual now. You know, I mean, you can't tell people that we're all spiritual. We're so spiritual that it makes your head spin. You know? So you can say, I believe in God. God is a spirit, but I can't believe in evil. I talked about, that's spiritual too, you know. Just let me read to you again from uh, uh, Anthony Del Banco. Um, A gulf is opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And it may flow from something else. And that is, uh, there's a, a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor, um, who I'm not recommending that you read his, his magnum opus, which is uh, A Secular Age. It's quite a book. But uh, he talks in there about this when he defines what that means. It is possible now for people to have an immediate, significant, full life without transcendence or eternity. You don't need to fool with this. You can think that that's how you can do it, and there's a lot of people that believe that. Even people who believe in God, an immediate, significant, full life without transcendence or eternity. Now, Paul is talking today about the the difference between the flesh and the spirit, but he means this. He means the flesh is all that is in the creation all that is in humanity that is predisposed to turn in on itself and away from God. That's the flesh. And the spirit is all that is turned uh, towards God, a desire to live a life congruent with God's purposes, uh, body, soul, mind, spirit, living congruently with our true self. And what is our true self? Father Keating says, our true self is not God, we are not God, but our true self is God. And you recover your true self from being able now to put into balance the three energy centers that govern all human life and the internal processes that you and I go through as people and in our relationships and families and communities and other places, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Those are the three things that we struggle with on a daily basis. Nobody can escape those things. And it isn't reasonable to say that you should just not worry about them. Because embedded in that are some very important things about being a human being and also being able to have the skills of coping with the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. You need to be concerned about your security and survival. (laughs) All of us want to have some uh, affection and esteem uh, that other people hold for us. And all of us want to have control. We want to have control over our circumstances and control over our emotions and our feelings and our uh, mental states. We want those things. And we need to have them. But all of us know that when they go off the rails, we are out of balance and things are in in trouble. 
and that we can't do it. Paul is speaking, this is a sort of therapeutic way to do it, but we live in a therapeutic age. N.T. Wright says we live in an age of moral therapeutic deism, which means God is absent, the culture is a therapeutic culture, and we have a view of morality that is uh, based upon what is known as emotivism. What feels right, we do, right? That's the, re- that's the reasoning. So how do we understand what it is? And those are the things that Paul means when he speaks about flesh. But he also has said, and part of his entire uh, reasoning throughout all of his writings, is that somehow we now have been given, through our baptism and through being part of the body of Christ, the coping mechanism of the Holy Spirit. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. That, that is, we can access that, even if we don't feel it or maybe believe in it much. It's always there. Because one of the things that we're going to be learning from the readings in the Old Testament is that God never runs away. God is always with us. God is always faithful. And Paul is speaking about uh, what it means to be spiritual, you know. I read somewhere the other day that uh, Christians have been spending, certainly at the academic level, uh, in biblical studies and in other places, uh, giving 19th century answers to 16th century questions. And we need to give 21st century answers to 1st century questions. What was going on when Paul was writing his letters and the community around him? And I said a little bit about that over the last two or three weeks. Paul, in his conversion, had his worldview shattered. And the, the uh, thing I used to, to uh, refer to that would be, if you have your glasses on and you're looking through them, and that's what you see. These are your worldview. So Paul had his conversion experience. He was struck blind and his glasses came off and he stepped on them. And his worldview was shattered. Now he's got to figure out how to put his specs back together. And what is he going to look through? Because he was raised with a worldview. So what we read about in Romans and in other places is him trying to put that worldview that he grew up with uh, in a Christian perspective. Belief in Christ. And how do I understand what that means as a pious Jew? And coming to the realization through what happened to me that everybody is in, not just the Jews. It's everybody. And God's gracious embrace is, is for everyone. So in Romans 8, we're going to be reading more about that moving forward. Uh, today, in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Mother McNeil told me just before I started to preach that this parable was one of the first, if not the first, Uh, passage translated into Old English in about the 600s or 700s because they believed that story was probably accessible because people had remembered it over time and it had been talked about and preached about. So here's what we need. We're going to be hearing more parables now from Matthew. And what we need to remember is that when you read the parables in in the Bible, in the Gospels, you have to have three things in mind. 
What did Jesus mean when he spoke the parable? What did the people who heard the parable first, the early church, uh, understand that was the meaning of the parable? And how do you and I understand the parable and whether or not it has any uh, meaning for us in 2014? So why biblical criticism comes in handy sometimes is to understand that what we read today has really two parts. The first part through verse 9 is the parable as Jesus spoke it. They are the words of Jesus. This view has been vindicated by the discovery of a Gnostic gospel many years ago called the Gospel of Thomas, where this parable appears through verse 9. So it is probably, as they say, the original material. And then the second part is the explanation of the parable. That's Matthew. Matthew is explaining to people way out what it means. He's interpreting the parable for the the church and saying this is what this means. So being faithful to what Jesus spoke, it's about the uneasy, uneasy, the rocky and uh, uneasy journey that Jesus goes through in his earthly ministry. He gets followers. Some of them uh, step away from him. Some of them openly criticize him when he's speaking. There is a discount of what it is that he's saying. They don't listen. And yet, as he moves forward, this enterprise bears fruit. Okay? So it means that any principled position we have about anything uh, requires some degree of perseverance. You know, people who've been in the helping professions for any time, or pastors for that matter, know about people who get all enthusiastic about Christianity. They're now going to change their life, and they start moving. And as soon as something happens that is more attractive or more appealing, they're out of here. They're gone. And so Jesus has, you know, the, 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 the uh, seeds are cast in a certain direction for this group, and they're gone. So in in the interpretation, we've got uh, bad soil, we've got thorns and thickets, the distractions of the world, and then, lo and behold, we have fertile ground. Now, this is true about many things, too. Those of you who teach understand that uh, sometimes you see students who just get it. They get it. And other people have to struggle to get it. And other people don't have any idea why in the world they have to learn this. You know, and so they step away in some form or another. That was what I could never understand in school. I just have to say this. I love history. I have all my life, even as a kid. And most of the time you'd have your classmates say, I don't know why we have to take this stuff. What does it have to do with my life now? Right? What does it have to do with my life now? Well... My own view is is that history does give you some aids into connecting the dots about how we got here from there, right? may not be the whole explanation, but it certainly does give you some idea of uh, what it is that's going on, you know. It's like uh, geography is another one. When I was teaching at St. Michael's School in Tucson, the parochial school we had, um, I said... um, 
Do you all know where Argentina is? Yeah, it's somewhere near Turkey, isn't it? <laughs> when you hear an answer like that, you know they don't know anything about Argentina, right? I had a history professor once who said, you don't like to have to memorize dates, but let me tell you something. You need to know the dates for some of this stuff. Because if you tell me that Napoleon lived in 1237 AD, I know you don't know anything about Napoleon. <laughs> right? You have to have some idea of when all this took place. So that is important. And so in Matthew's parable, we have an idea now about how the early church uh, understood what they had to do, what their lived experience was. Don't you see that it comes around? There's some successes in this enterprise, and then things sort of falter. We're like that. If we even wish to persevere, often we get uh, distracted, or we get worried or nervous, so we get focused on other kinds of things, and um, we got to sort of regroup or reboot, I guess nowadays we'd say, right? You know, I'm just always amazed at the, at the benefit of rebooting. <laughs> Even some of the tech people who help us at St. Luke's Church say, unplug it and then plug it in again. Right? That actually works a lot. It isn't just, you know, oh, somebody's wise idea. Unplug it and it works again. So when you think about uh, the parables of Jesus, he's trying to uh, give us to understand the processes that go on as we seek to be faithful. And he's telling us, too, that he's got to do that because he's been disappointed and rejected and there's pushback, you know. I've said this many times. When I, somebody doubts me, I feel that it's me, Right? When you get pushback, you doubt yourself. At least I do, you know. You say something, and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. I just, <laughs> right? So we, we tend to do that. But what Jesus is speaking about in the best sense are people who persevere in the midst of all that and uh, stick, stick to their principles. So maybe that's what we're talking about in the gospel today. So the assignment this week is stick to your principles. Amen. <laughs>